There are usually two reasons why you would ever go to a cemetery. The first reason is usually to attend the funeral or burial of a loved one. And the second reason is to maybe go back and visit that loved one's gravesite. Besides these two reasons, no one really ever visits cemeteries. And yet I believe that there is a hidden reason, an underlying one, of why people do not like to visit them. When it comes to the topic of death, it's just, it's just one of the things that no one really wants to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. It's scary to fathom. And when you do visit a cemetery, right, all you can think about is death. Literally, it's all around you at that point. And so unless you have a legitimate reason to go to one, you can just try to ignore it. Since it's out of sight, out of mind, right? Only then can you get moving on with your life. At least what some people would think. And yet that's the problem. Because no matter how much you try to avoid death like the plague, you will always fail. Because everybody one day will die. Unfortunately, death is the great equalizer of humanity. That's the hard truth. It's a sad truth. And not only will you all experience it one day, including myself, but the crazy thing is, is that we all experience it in some way, shape, or form today. For example, all of you know someone, or at least known of someone, that has died. Just think of the recent COVID pandemic. We either know someone who has died or has been affected by that pandemic. And yet, not only when it comes to human death, but we even see it in how people treat each other each and every single day. Just consider how people murder each other in their hearts when it comes to so-called traffic, right? It's horrible. And yet, we not only see it how people treat one another, but we also even see it in nature. And I'm not sure if you realize, but there was a really bad earthquake that hit Morocco a couple days ago. About 2,000 people died in that earthquake. And again, people will look at all these phenomenons in nature and say that, you know what, death it's just merely a natural process of the human experience. And yet, that's wrong. That is wrong because when you look at the Bible, loved ones, it says that when it comes to death, there is nothing natural to it. You know that it has wreaked havoc upon the planet ever since the beginning of human civilization. And I know at least this, that it has, it has all caused you tremendous brokenness in some way, shape, or form. Because it, is, because it has affected every single person throughout history. But not because death is a natural phenomenon that you just need to embrace. But instead, it is because it exists for it first entered the world, our world, loved ones, as a curse. And I'm going to explain what I mean by saying that death is a curse a little bit later. But in the meantime, it's worth asking a, asking a question right now. Is there anything that can rescue from death? And the good news is that the Bible says, yes, there is a solution, because the main point in Galatians 3, 10 to 14 actually gives an answer, which is this, that you are saved by faith in Christ alone. That's the main point of the text that also gives us an answer to that question, that you are saved by faith in Christ alone. But how? How does that actually work? And as you see in your text, Paul is going to present two promises to show you that you are saved by faith in Christ alone. And so the first promise is that God curses those who break his commandments. That's the first promise that we're going to see. And second, the second promise is that God blesses those who believe in Christ. That's the second promise. Those are the two promises Paul is going to show us this evening. However, before, we, before I dive into the text, I do need to comment about the overall structure of our text tonight. Because the Apostle Paul structures Galatians 3, 10 to 14 
as a chiasm. A chiasm. If you don't know what a chiasm is, a chiasm is just really a, it's a literary device that sets, that presents a set of ideas, but then repeats them in reverse order. Here's kind of what I mean. Look at Galatians 3, 10, 14 in your Bibles, loved ones. If you look at verse 10, you're going to see that in content, it parallels that to, to the verses 13 to 14. So the outside of Galatians in our text tonight, you got verse 10, verses 13 to 14, they are parallel to one another. And if you're going to go to the center of the passage, the center of the chiasm, you're going to see that verse 11 then parallels the content of verse 12. And so with that in mind then, everything on the outside of our text or this chiasm supports what the center says because the whole point of a chiasm is that the center is the main point of this text. And also because of that as well, what we're going to see tonight is that when you look at these outside of, the, of, of these verses, the outside verses, verses 10 and verses 13 to 14, they're going to focus on that first promise, the first promise that I mentioned earlier. And yet, as you move towards the center of the chiasm, you're going to see that Paul is going to focus on the second promise, the second promise that I mentioned earlier tonight. And so, with that in mind, Paul organizes his text as a chiasm. But yet, as we go through the chiasm tonight, you're going to see that Paul's going to start with the first promise that God curses those who break his commandments. Then he's going to move to um, the second promise in the middle of the chiasm, that is, God blesses those who believe in Christ. And then after he does all that, he then finishes the chiasm at the end of our passage tonight by going back to the first promise. And so I only share that with you so that you not only understand the flow of the text here, but so that you're able to follow me more easy, easier as well. So with all that in mind, loved ones, I will begin with the first promise, which is this that Paul shows us in his text, that God curses those who break his commandments. That God curses those who break his commandments. So look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 in your Bibles, loved ones. This is what Paul writes here. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so the Apostle Paul begins by saying that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And yet, before you can understand what it means to be under a curse, I need to first explain who these people are that are relying on the works of the law. If you look at the word for at the beginning of verse 10, it actually supports what Paul has said previously in verses 6 to 9, what I preached last week. And what Paul argues there is that Abraham's faith is the model for true saving faith. That is, Father Abraham, the, the, the father of the Israelite nation, his faith is the model for all true saving faith. But why? Well, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 7, he writes that just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And when you look at that text, Paul is quoting from Genesis 15, 6 to show that Abraham, he is saved by believing in God's promises. That's why God counts him. That's why God counts Abraham as righteous. Not because of anything Abraham did, not because of any good found in Abraham, because if you do a little character study of Abraham, he was a sinner with flaws like everyone else. And so instead, Abraham is counted right before God because he believes in God's promises. And for those who are unaware of the promises God made to Abraham, there's really three big ones you got to keep in mind. One, you got the land promise, which is the land of Israel. 
The second is a people promise, that is the people of Israel or the Jews today. And the final promise is that of a blessing, that through Abraham's seed, his family, they're going to be a blessing to all the world, all the nations. But yet, although I'm talking about Abraham, this is not only good news, this promise to those who are ethnic sons of Abraham, if you're a Jew ethnically, it is also good news to people from all the nations who believe in God's promises, like Abraham, spiritually. That is why Paul then says in Galatians 3, 8-9, that the scripture, God's word, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so we look at a passage like that, and you see that Paul is quoting from Genesis 12, 3, to show that Abraham, he is going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. How? Well, one of Abraham's descendants is the promise who would bless all the nations. And when you look at all the genealogies of the Old Testament, all the way going to the New, you will see that this person, this promise, is none other than Israel's promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the promise given to Abraham by God all those years ago so that whoever believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior would be blessed like Abraham who first believed in God's promises. And so as a result, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, a non-Jew, you are justified by faith. You are made right before God by believing in his beloved son, Jesus. And so like Abraham then, he was blessed by his faith, by believing in God's promises. Likewise, for everyone else, you are also blessed with Abraham if you believe in the person of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those promises God first made to Abraham. Therefore, we must answer a question to move on then. When Paul refers to those relying on the works of the law, who are these people? Who are these people that Paul is referring to? And if you've been following me in this series in Galatians, it is none other than the Galatian Christians themselves, and also those who are deceiving them. That is Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. That's the whole reason why Paul writes Galatians in the first place, because he had these Jewish Christians they were bewitching, they were tricking these Galatian Christians with a false gospel, with fake news. And there's more backstory to that, why the Jewish Christians were doing that. If you want more information about that, refer to my older sermons, because I give more details why the Jewish Christians were doing that. Nonetheless, they were troubling these Galatian Christians. They were saying that you need to be Jewish like us in order to be saved. And because of that, they were deceiving them that they need to be saved by their own good works. And now I know that sounds negative, right? And I don't want it to, to, to say that it's bad to obey God's commandments because we're all called to. As Christians, we're saved by the grace of God to now live for God and obey him. Because as Christians, you are saved by faith in Christ alone, but that faith is never alone. Because what authenticates your faith, your faith as true, is the good works that come after your faith, Right? But yet the problem with the Galatian Christians here is that they believe they must do good works to be saved. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.16 that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so a person is justified, that is, declared right before God by believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
Only then can you be forgiven of your sins. Only then can you be truly cleansed of all your sinning against him. Can't be done by your own strength. It's impossible. And you're going to see why a little bit later tonight. In the meantime, the Galatians know that they are saved by faith in Christ alone. When they hear this said by Paul, they're not denying it. And that's why Paul asks all those rhetorical questions earlier in chapter 3. He says that the Galatians have received the Holy Spirit. And the reason why that's a big deal, because it shows that they did believe in the gospel by faith. Because to receive the life-given Holy Spirit is to believe in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And so again, who are truly those relying on works of the law? Well, really, at the end of the day, it's anyone who trusts in themselves for salvation instead of trusting in Jesus that he is salvation. In Paul's case, the Galatians were trusting in themselves for salvation through their own good works rather than trusting in Jesus for eternal life. As a result, that's why Paul writes in Galatians 3.10 here that it is those who trust in themselves for salvation, those people are under a curse. But that then begs the question, what does it mean to be under a curse? Well, just to clarify, it has nothing to do with, say, a witch doctor or a voodoo priest chanting an evil spell against you. That's not what, this, that's not what Paul is trying to get at here. Instead, to understand what he means, look at the end of Galatians 3.10. Look at what he writes there, saying, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so when we look at this passage here then, we see that Paul is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. And just to give some context to that verse there, if you were to go back to the book of Deuteronomy, you will see that Israel, the nation of Israel, they're about to enter the promised land for the first time. But before they do so, Moses gives a final speech to them to prepare them to take the promised land. And that final speech is actually recorded as the book of Deuteronomy in your Bibles tonight, loved ones. And in one of the final sections of Deuteronomy, it's a famous passage called the blessings and the curses. What do I mean by that? Well, once Israel entered the promised land, they were told to eventually go to two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. While they're on Mount Gerizim, you would have the Levites to pronounce the blessings to Israel. After that, they were to go to Mount Ebal. And once they're on Mount Ebal, the Levites again would pronounce not the blessings, but the curses to Israel. Now, what do I mean by blessings and curses? This is what I mean, loved ones. The blessings are everything that God promises to Israel if they obey his commandments, if they obeyed his word. And the most significant one is that they would live long in the land of promise if they obeyed God's word. That, that is what I mean by blessings. In contrast, the curses, the curses are everything that God promises to Israel if they disobey his commandments, if they broke his word. And the most significant one, loved ones, is that they would be exiled from the land of promise if they failed to keep his word. And to focus more on the context of Deuteronomy 27 here, the Levites, they pronounced 12 curses in particularly on Mount Ebal to Israel. And the thing that's interesting is that after the Levites pronounce each curse, Israel then, after each one, says, Amen. We agree 
so be it. And what that indicates is that after Israel hears these curses, it is as if that if we do truly break the law, allow these curses to fall upon us, allow these things to come to pass. And so it's very interesting that Israel says amen to these things, and I'll, and I'll share why in a little bit. But in light of these curses, there's, 11, there's 12 of them in total. The first 11 deal with like religious and social practice, but that final one is the most important one. Because that final one here, is, it, it acts as a summary verse. As, as it says in Deuteronomy 27, 26, Moses writes that cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. It's this summary verse in Deuteronomy that Paul is quoting in Galatians 3.10. And so what is the idea to be cursed? Well, it has nothing again to do with evil spells and rituals. Instead, it is simply the creator God's verdict to anyone who breaks his commandments. And when you look at the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you soon realize that they did not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And of course, God shows his mercy and grace to Israel. He shows his steadfast love and faithfulness to Israel. And one of the ways that you know that is that he sends his prophets. He sends them to call them out for their sinning. And not only to call them out, but to call them to repentance back to God. And yet, although God did that for hundreds of years, Israel overall desired to worship false gods in their own image rather than the creator God who made them in his image. And because of that, God judges Israel. He ultimately judges Israel by spitting them out of the land of promise. Since they broke God's law, they refused to repent and turn back to God. And so as a result, God judges Israel accordingly with these promised curses, ultimately being exiled from the land of promise. Therefore, why does Paul quote from Deuteronomy 27-26 here? He is making the point that whoever sins against God is cursed to receive his judgment. And yet, not only did Israel rebel against God, but all of humanity has rebelled against God as the creator. As Paul would write later in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned. All of humanity has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is why the Galatian and Jewish Christians here are under a curse. That is, the curse of the law, because they believe they could be saved by relying on the law for salvation, and yet the law is clear that cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so Paul's big point here is that no one is able to perfectly obey the law. Just look at your own life. Look at human experience. No one is perfect. No one is good. No, not one. Why? Why can't no one obey God's law perfectly? Because all are under the curse of the law. And the reason why no one is able to perfectly obey God's law is because all are under the curse of sin. The curse of death. But what do I mean by that? The curse of death. The curse of sin. Well, we need to go back to the beginning of the, of the biblical story, the beginning of human history. And it's when God created the universe, right? He created it originally good. Since God himself is the standard of goodness, everything he created was originally good. Even the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, you and I, humanity was made very good. And what that indicates is that there was no evil at the beginning. No brokenness, no pain, no suffering, no death. 
Instead, there is only life. There is only rest. There is only joy and peace and goodness. And the crazy thing is is that humanity had all of that because they had a relationship with the God they were made to worship and enjoy. But we don't partake of that anymore today, right? We partake of evil and brokenness, pain and suffering, and death. Because when the, because the first humans, Adam and Eve, at the beginning, they chose to trust in their own wisdom rather than God's perfect wisdom. Instead of submitting to God, they wanted to be gods themselves. And so what happened? They ate from the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden, and the rest was history. Sin and death came into the world, and not only did Adam and Eve die spiritually that, one, that day, but they eventually died physically alongside everything else in creation. That is why you all experience death on a daily basis, loved ones. That is why you see brokenness all over the world. From the highest infrastructures of society all the way down to the family nucleus, there is brokenness everywhere. Even human history. If you look at human history, that serves as a grim reminder of the world's brokenness in the past. And not only that, but when you look at the moral evil of humanity today, when you look at the natural evil today in nature, like natural disasters, all that serves as a grim reminder of the world's brokenness today. And such a consistent pattern then, throughout history, it's going to continue to do so until the end of time when Christ returns in his second coming to make all things new. All because the first Adam, or the first human, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God at the beginning of history. And not only that, but Adam's first sin, it wrecked havoc across the planet, but his same sin nature that caused that, it has, it has been passed down to all of his descendants. Humanity, you and I. That's why Paul says in Romans 5.12 that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, all of humanity has committed cosmic treason against the creator God, and the due penalty for their error is God's curse of judgment, the curse of death. And that's why Paul would say later in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, which we see and experience on a day-to-day basis, but ultimately one day, spiritual death. That after you die here physically, there is a second death if you refuse to believe in Jesus. And that's the death, the day when you die spiritually, where you go to hell for your sinning forevermore. And I know that there might be some unbelievers listening to me, and they might disagree with that assessment of humanity. That it's too... That's too pessimistic. It's not optimistic of all the good people that are in humanity. But yet to respond to that, consider the following wisdom of a Christian who used to be an atheist. The British writer C.S. Lewis once said that humanity knows the moral law of nature. They also break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. In other words, in your heart of hearts, you know Everyone knows that you are to behave in a certain way. And yet, you also know that you do not. And the only way you know you're supposed to behave in a certain way because you were created with a conscience. And it's your conscience that allows you to know what is right and what is wrong objectively. Not based on your feelings, not based on what society says, but what ultimately the standard of truth, the God of the Bible tells you what is right and what is wrong. And no human can make that up. You can't make that up, nor can human society make that up. Instead, you consciously know what is right and wrong because the creator God of the Bible gave you that sense of what is right 
and wrong. And so everything I've been saying is true, not because I'm saying it, but rather it is true because it's been revealed in God's holy word. And also it best corresponds with reality, making it consistent. Nonetheless, when it comes to the curse of death, all of humanity is cursed. For all have failed to obey God perfectly due to sin. And the curse then leads God to justly condemn everyone to eternal death in hell. That's the bad news. I know it's sad news. And yet, in light of all that, there is hope. The Bible does say there is hope in all this. Although God curses humanity with death for breaking his commandments, there is a way to salvation. But the catch is it doesn't depend upon you. And I know in our culture, everyone wants to believe in themselves, follow their own hearts to do it their way. But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to finding life, it's not going to depend upon you. Instead, you must place your faith in the second promise of how you are saved by your faith in Christ alone. And it's this promise that God blesses those who believe in Christ. God blesses those who believe in Christ. That's the second promise. And so look at Galatians 3.11 in your Bibles, loved ones, where Paul writes this. He moves on in his argument by saying that now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul is continuing his argument here by saying that it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And the evidence here is everything he said in the previous verse, in Galatians 3.10. But what Paul does here is that now he adds that no one is justified before God by the law. And that word justified there, it's a very important word. Justified is not only common throughout Galatians, but really in Paul's thought in general. And although I defined it back when I preached Galatians 2.15-16, I recommend you check that out to understand a full exposition of what it means to be justified. I'll give you a brief summary right now to save you some time. When it comes to Paul's thought, to be justified is to be declared right before God. In other words, you are saved by passively believing in Christ Jesus by faith alone. Because while Jesus was on earth, he earned perfect righteousness by perfectly obeying God. And yet, Christ freely gives his perfect righteousness to sinners like you and me by dying on the cross. And because of that, you can't actively earn it. Instead, you can only passively receive it as a gift by faith. That is what it means to be justified by God here. You cannot earn it by your own strength. Or, like the Galatians here, you cannot even earn it by your own good works. Instead, it is only by faith in Christ alone. And to prove that point, Paul is going to use another Old Testament quotation here. Look at what he says at the end of Galatians 3.11. He says that the righteous, the righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul is quoting from a, from a prophetic book here, and it's the book of Habakkuk. He's quoting from Habakkuk 2.4 here, and just to give him context about that book, if you read that book, it's very short. The prophet Habakkuk, he's crying out to God in this book. He's crying out to God in prayer to deal with all the evil in the kingdom of Judah. And so how does God respond to this? Well, God responds to Judah's wickedness by sending an even more wicked kingdom to judge them, the kingdom of Babylon. And once Habakkuk hears this, he's dumbfounded. 
How could, God, how could God judge an evil nation with a more wicked nation? He doesn't get it, right? Which most of the times when it comes to God's wisdom, we tend not to understand the big picture, right? And yet, nonetheless, it's during that context, it's during that very rough point in Judah's history that Habakkuk learns that I must live by trusting in God. If I'm going to live my life moving forward, I must trust in God that he is good and that he knows what he's doing. That by having faith in God, it's trusting him to even work the evil here for ultimate good. And so keep, kind of keeping that context in mind then, likewise, when it comes to the idea of salvation, a person can only find life by their faith alone. And that is, as Paul clarifies, is by faith in Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior. And Paul would even emphasize this later in his letters, like Romans 1.17. This is a huge one. He says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Salvation begins by faith. It finishes with faith. And then he quotes from Habakkuk 2.4 again saying, The righteous shall live by faith. And yet to strengthen this point here, Paul is going to do something very interesting here in his text. If you recall, I mentioned that Paul employs a chiasm, right? A chiasm in Galatians 3, 10 to 14. But there's actually a deeper reason why Paul even does it in the first place. And the reason is, is that Paul is actually using a common Jewish technique of interpreting the scriptures here. Because when it comes to the New Testament, when you study the New Testament, one of the most controversial topics is how does the New Testament use the Old Testament? In other words, how does the New Testament writers use the Old Testament? And the reason why I even mention that, because in our text tonight in Galatians 3, this is one of the most famous examples. Because Paul's quoting the Old Testament like crazy, right? And although I'm no expert on this subject, I do believe that the following information is going to be helpful in helping you understand what Paul is doing here. Not so that you only understand how he uses the Old Testament, but even what's the message in our text tonight. And so, another question. What Jewish technique of interpreting scripture is Paul using here that was really common amongst the rabbis in his day? Well, the technique that Paul was using here, and I'm going to throw the word at you, it was called a Gezerah Shavah. That is the technique that Paul is using here. And what Paul was doing here is that Paul would bring two Old Testament texts that really share a common word to help interpret each other. And the one thing to keep in mind is that both these Old Testament texts are coming from completely different contexts. And yet the whole reason why Paul brings them together to help interpret each other is because they have one shared word in common. And so if you look at Galatians 3.11-12, for example, you're going to see that Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2.4, as I said earlier, and a little later, he quotes from Leviticus 18.5. And now look at those two passages, Galatians 3.11-12. What do you think is the one word both of those quotations have in common? It's going to be the verb to live. To live. That is what both of those verses have in common. And yet he's not only doing it in verses 10, or he's not only doing it in verses 11 to 12, but he's also doing it in Galatians 3.10 to 13. So we see it in the middle of the chiasm, and we see it on the outside of the chiasm. If you look on the outside, right, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 27.26 and Deuteronomy 21.23. So now look at those two verses. What are, what are the two words that those two verses have in common? Curse. That's how both of the passages begin. And so that is how Paul is using these Old Testament texts here. 
That is also why Galatians 3, 10 to 14 is really structured as a chiasm. Because verses 3 to 10, 3, 10, and 13 in Galatians share that common word of cursed. And when you look at the middle of the chiasm, verses 3, 11, and 12 share the common word to live. And so why do I bring that up? Why does Paul use these Old Testament quotations? It's only when we understand why Paul does it that he really will understand really what Paul is getting at here in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. And so it's with that in mind, loved ones. Keep, keep that idea in mind that, that the, the center is related by the word to live. The outside quotations are related by the word curse. And once we understand why Paul is doing this, you're going to be able to understand Paul's message tonight. And so with that in mind, look at Galatians 3.12 here. Look at Galatians 3.12 in your Bibles, loved ones. Paul writes that, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And when Paul says that the law is not of faith, it is in the sense that the law does not offer salvation by faith. You don't believe in the law to be saved, right? Paul, that's what Paul is saying, because if you're going to be saved through the law, it offers salvation through another way. Look again at the end of Galatians 3.12, where Paul says, The one who does them shall live by faith. So there's that other quotation there. It's from Leviticus 18.5. And the idea there is that if you want to receive God's blessing, then you have to align your whole life to God's Torah, to God's law. And what's interesting is that when ancient Jews interpreted this passage, they even went as far as to saying that if you want to not only be blessed by God, but if you want to receive the blessing of eternal life, then you must align your whole life to the law of God. And so to find life in God through Torah, through keeping the law, you got to perfectly obey it. Because if you're going to do them, you will live by them. But yet... Paul has just said and made the point earlier that no one is able to keep the law perfectly. And so anyone who is really of works of the law is really still under the curse. And remember, Paul is quoting from Habakkuk 2.4, Leviticus 18.5, and they're related by that word to live, right? And so what is Paul's point here? There were only two ways to be righteous before God. You can either live by faith in God or you can live by works of the law. But yet Paul shows us is that it is impossible for anyone to obey the law perfectly. It is impossible to live by works of the law. As a result, you can only be right before God by one way and one way alone, and that is by faith in him. You can only have eternal life by faith in God. That is the point of Paul's message here tonight. And if you do want to live forever, you can only do so by putting your faith in the God of Israel. Not in your local politicians, not in your government, not in your finances, not in your comfort, but in the greater God of the Bible. That is who you're called to place your trust in, loved ones. And it's with keeping that all in mind that that's really how Paul uses the Old Testament quite masterfully here in Galatians. Therefore, my brothers and sisters... You know that you're declared right before God by your faith in Christ alone, but there's a question you and I got to ask tonight. Do you truly live before God by faith? And what I mean by that is that do you live your life by continually trusting God in every single day in occurrence, all the, all the days of your life? Or do you mentally confess that Jesus is Savior and your theology is like, yeah, I know God is Lord and Savior, but practically, you live out your life as if you are Lord yourself. 
Because as it comes to living the Christian life, loved ones, there's two dangers we must always guard ourselves upon. The first danger is that you got to take heed of legalism, especially the legalism of the Galatians, because that's what they're doing there. They're trying to be saved by their own good works, and yet the danger of legalism is that you think you're faithfully living a good life by your outside works, by your performance. But yet the problem is, you may look good on the outside, but what does your heart look like? What does your inner man look like? Because you can focus on the fact that you may not sin outwardly in your life outside um, does it look all crazy? But what does it look like on the inside? Do you still sin on the inside? How holy are you on the inside of your heart? And just to kind of give an example, just think about just your thought life. I know Pastor Steve really hit lust today. How are your thoughts regarding lust? Is there anger in your heart? Do you get prideful? Do you get discontent? Do you get jealous? And keeping those things in mind then, are you therefore proud that, hey, I don't act upon these sins outwardly, but in your heart, do you act upon these things inwardly? Because if you have that mindset, then I'm sorry to say, but at, at, at the end of the day, that's half-hearted devotion to God. And so, loved ones, do not be deceived like how the Galatians were here in Galatians 3. Do not ever be deceived that you could be saved by your mere outward performance as a Christian. Just because you may go to church, maybe read your Bible, pray to God, you serve at the church, and maybe you're even a good citizen, that you pay your taxes, that you work hard, that you don't cheat on your spouse, that you provide for your family and your children. And I'm not saying that's bad, right? Those are things that are good. But just because you do them does not mean that you automatically have a place preserved in heaven just for you. Because it is possible to do all those things and be a seemingly good person on the outside before people, and yet you can be condemned by God based on the inside of your heart, because at that point, your heart is utterly distant from him. And as Paul has made clear, you cannot live your life that way. You cannot live by depending upon your own works of the law, in a sense. It's impossible, because you're called to live by your faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's the first thing you got to be careful of, loved ones. The lie, the deception of legalism. But there's even another thing you got to be careful of. And it's really the, the, the danger of what's called easy believism, which we see in our culture today regarding Christianity. And what I mean by easy believism, which is really the opposite of scream of legalism, is that you think you're a Christian based on a prayer that you, that you once said at an altar call at church. You embrace Jesus as your Savior with your lips, but yet you deny him fundamentally with your actions. Just because you ask Jesus to enter your heart one day, that does not give you the freedom to live your life wherever you want. You can't just turn up six days a week, church up on Sunday, and then repeat the cycle next week. According to the Apostle James, that type of faith is dead. And so, loved ones, we got to take heed, thinking that we can save ourselves by legalistic works, but yet, we can't take the grace of the gospel for granted, but live in whoever we want. The gospel calls us to live in a certain way, but how then are you to live? Again, you are to live by your faith in Christ alone. That is what Paul is calling you to do today. And yet, although all of you believe, most of you believe in Jesus by faith alone, how do you live that out practically, right? And I think Paul teaches you by his example, based on what he says earlier in Galatians 2.20. Let me quote it really quick. Because Paul writes here that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so since Jesus, he is the Son of God, he loved you and he gave himself for you, loved ones, on the cross. As a result, you are to deny yourself of your sinful passions and live for Jesus. And the first thing that you need to do to do that is to first put to death the sins of your flesh. Be killing sin or it will be killing you because if you don't, it will be robbing you of a joyful relationship that you're always meant to have with King Jesus. And the first thing that you need to do if you want to do that is that first, you got to realize that there's sin in your life. That you got to repent of those sins in your life that are causing you to fully live for Jesus. And I'm not just saying that we should just generally repent of sins, like, oh, Lord, forgive me for having lustful thoughts today. Forgive me for cutting off that person and being angry. Like, like, no, be specific about your sins. If you know that something caused you to think a particular way, go to God and, and pray for confession regarding that sin specifically. And the only reason why I'm saying that you need to do that, because only when you're specific about your sins are you, are you then able to specifically deal with your sins practically. And, so, and, and, and how do you deal with your sins practically then? you got to renew your mind, church. you got to renew your mind through the word of God. you got to put off your love of the world, right? Put it off and replace it with the greater love of God. Only when you put off your old sinful self that has been crucified to Christ on the cross that you're able to live the new life in Christ by the word. And so whatever the sins in your life that you may be struggling with or maybe getting a foothold in your life, here's a practical, here's a practical way to kill that sin in your life. Memorize scripture. But not just any scriptures, but memorize scriptures that deal with those sins particularly. For example, if you struggle with anger, memorize scriptures that talk about, for example, God's forgiveness. Because you can't be angry for someone if you have forgiven them before God. Right? You want to do the righteous opposite. Or another example, if you struggle with the fear of man, you're just so concerned about what other people think that that it just overwhelms you then replace that by memorizing scriptures by fearing God. The righteous opposite. Put off that, that bad desire, replace it with something greater. Or say if you struggle with lust, memorize scriptures that not only deal with sexual morality, but I would even say the beauty of God. Don't desire the, 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 the deceitful pleasures of the flesh. Rather, replace it with the greater things of, well, what is true beauty? God is beauty. Let me rest on those realities. If we're anxious... Memorize scriptures that deal with trusting in God, that he is in control over all things. If it's discontentment, memorize scriptures that deal with being content in God. And if you struggle to find verses for your sin struggles, then talk with me after service so I can help you find those verses so that you can be putting to death the sin in your life. That is how Christ dealt with the temptations of Satan when he was in the wilderness. Allow Christ to be your perfect example. He understands. He sympathizes with you. And, and, and because of that, allow Christ then to empower you, loved ones, by the Spirit, with the Word of God, to do battle against the sins in your life. Because only when you, as, as Pastor Steve said earlier, get radical in killing your sin, only then will you be able to love God with all of your heart. Because only then will you be able to trust Him with all of your soul. Only then will you live for Him with all of your might, with all of your life. And when you do that, are you only then to, that you're able to love your neighbor by doing good works regarding their physical needs and ultimately preaching the gospel 
to them regarding their greatest spiritual need in Christ Jesus. Because at that point, when you're living your life for the love of God, love of neighbor, in that practical way, you will be living by faith in Christ alone. You're not only forgiven of your sins and you believe in him, but your faith in Christ is what allows you to live before him each and every single day. And so loved ones, like Paul, even like the, prophets of, like the prophet Habakkuk, even old father Abraham, live by your faith in God and rest in God's promises in his holy word. Because only then we you start living the life you wish you had because you realize that it was always meant to be lived in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Paul has demonstrated that there's only two ways to be right before God, either by perfectly obeying the law or by your faith in Christ. And yet, Paul has clearly proved that no human being can be saved by works of the law. No one has been able to do so perfectly, so the only way to find eternal life is by faith in Christ alone. However, before we finish with the final two verses, there is a preliminary question I think we we all need to ask tonight. Because it's one thing to say that you're saved by faith in Christ alone, but what does that actually mean? How does that actually work? Because if you, if, you, if you just think that believing in Christ simply means that God forgets about your sins and just sweeps your sins under the rugs of eternity, then that would actually make God unjust. Because it would be like as if, say, a drunk driver um, gets in a car accident, kills a whole family, and then the judge says, like, hey, don't ever do that again, little Johnny, and slaps him on the wrist and allows him to go. That's not justice. That's injustice. And remember again, humanity is under the curse of sin. They have committed cosmic treason against God. And so how does believing in Jesus actually remove the curse that God is both not only the, he's not only just in judging your sin, but also the justifier of saving you from death by your faith in him? It's that concern that Paul is then going to give the simple and yet robust answer in Galatians 3.13. And I believe that his answer is going to be helpful for you, brothers and sisters, to appreciate the grace, the sweet grace of how God shows you love and forgiveness through his son Jesus on the cross. I believe it's going to help you appreciate that more richly, at least as a reminder that we should think about it more deeply. But not only that, but I also think that this nuanced sense of, of the gospel is going to really help empower how you share the gospel. Because understanding how Christ removes the curse of sin from you will actually help you clarify to unbelievers how does Christ's death allow them to be forgiven. And so to understand all that then, Paul returns then to the first promise. The first promise of how you are really saved by your faith in Christ alone. How that actually works. And so again, the, the, the first promise and the third point, the final part of our passage, Paul reminds us that God curses those who break his commandments. God curses those who break his commandments. And so looking at verse 13 of Galatians 3. Look there in your Bibles, loved ones. Paul writes that Christ, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Paul says here that Christ redeemed us. Pretty simple. But from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now let now think about the weight of that verse there. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How is it 
that Christ redeemed his people back to himself from the curse of the law by becoming a curse himself. Because remember, to be cursed by God is to be under God's judgment. And the only reason a person would ever be under God's judgment is because they have sinned against him. And yet, when you read the Bible, particularly the Gospels, it records clearly that Jesus Christ never sinned. He is the perfect God-man, fully God, fully man, in the one person of Jesus. He never sinned because he was the only person who was fully God at the same time to ever obey God's law perfectly. If anything, he is the perfect law keeper who deserves nothing but God's blessing of eternal life. He's not a lawbreaker. He doesn't deserve God's wrath like the rest of humanity. And to even complicate this, this idea even further, to say that God's Messiah, that Jesus, who is God's Messiah, to say that Jesus is the Messiah, yet is also cursed by God, for a first century Jew, that would have been scandalous. That would have been blasphemous. That would have been unthinkable. Paul, how is Jesus the Messiah and at the same time cursed by God? Indeed, that would have been a stumbling block for Jews back in the day. And so how did Jewish Christians harmonize that? How does Paul harmonize the seemingly paradoxical claim that Jesus is God's Messiah, but also is cursed by God? Well, we see a hint here with the word redeemed at verse 13. This is where Paul starts to give us an answer. That word redeemed there, it carries this sense of buying a person back from slavery. That's, that's, that's the, the, the cultural context there. And since humanity was under the cruel slavery of sin and death, Christ had to, in a sense, buy back his people so that they would not be judged by God. But how does Christ accomplish that? How does he redeem a people back to himself again from the curse of God's judgment? And it's at the end of verse 13 that Paul gives his answer. And so look there, loved ones, where Paul says this, that for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And the quotation that Paul is using there is from Deuteronomy 21, 23. And contextually, to give you some background, during Old Testament times, the corpse of enemies, or sometimes criminals, they would often be hanged on a tree. Sometimes it would be on a wooden pole, but the whole reason that, 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 that people did that was to either add insult or to serve as a public warning regarding these enemies or criminal, criminals that were publicly executed. And yet, these corpses, they could remain till after sundown. And the reason why that was the case, because it would, it would show disregard to that human being who was not only publicly humiliated, but it would also show disregard for the image that they were made in, God's image. And so with that in mind then, how is it that Jesus, as God's Messiah then, redeems his people back to himself by becoming a curse of God? It's the curse of the cross. It is the cross that brings together that Jesus is the Messiah and dying as a curse for sinners. It's the cross that helps us understand this reality. To help understand this, the ancient church preacher John Chrysostom once said this, that by dying, Jesus rescued from death those who were dying, so that by taking upon himself the curse, he delivered his people from it. In other words, Jesus lays down his own life by bearing the curse of humanity upon himself. Why? So that he would redeem humanity back to himself again. 
Not that he was obligated to. Not that humanity was worthy of it, but because God so loved the world that he gave his eternally begotten son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him will not die under the curse of the law, but have everlasting life, will be blessed by God. Not because of anything they did, but because Christ died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And even when I use the word cross, right, just, just to clarify again, what is a cross? The cross is really was a form of execution that the Romans would use during the first century. And yet the, the cross, the Roman cross, was really a beam of wood. It was a beam of wood that was used to execute criminals. And the reason why I emphasize that, right, is because Deuteronomy 21 saying here is that cursed is everyone who dies on a tree, but when you think of the cross, the cross in a sense was a tree. Christ was still a curse when he died on the tree of the cross. And just to kind of help clarify that, right, especially in the context of Deuteronomy 21, consider what the gospel Mark says. All the gospels recount the burial of Christ in, in, in similar ways. A couple of the details um, overlap and, and, and whatnot. But Mark, but Mark is very clear. Consider what he says in chapter 15, verses 42 to 43 about Christ's burial. Mark, Mark writes that after Christ died, evening had come, since it was the day of preparation for Passover. That is, the day before the Sabbath. So you have Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin, he was a Pharisee, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. And so he took courage and went to Pilate, the Roman governor, and asked for the body of Jesus. And if you look at the four gospel accounts, it's going to be different wordings and stuff like that, but the general idea is that Jesus... He was really buried before the evening. Why? Well, one, it says when evening had come, or as evening was coming, it would have been before the beginning of Shabbat or, or before the Sabbath meal that Jews would have partaken of that Friday evening because Sabbath usually begins in the evening on that Friday. And so Joseph of Arimathea and all the other disciples wanted to bury Jesus beforehand. And so why do I even bring that up? Because Mark and the Uspel Gospel writers would have not been concerned to mention those details unless there's something significant about that. Something significant as if it connected to the curse back in Deuteronomy 21. And so the fact that these details are mentioned throughout the Gospels shows that the early Christians believed that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he really died as a curse on the cross. And so when Christ died on the cross then, he became a curse to redeem his people back from the curse of the law. That is, the curse of death. And just to, and just to complete this idea then, this is, I'm about to explain one of the most beautiful aspects of the gospel message. This is what theologians have called throughout history as the great exchange. The great exchange, and, and what is the great exchange? Well, there's a couple New Testament passages that help us understand this idea of the great exchange. I'm going to read them really quickly and then explain them to you just because it adds to the richness of what is Jesus doing here by dying on the cross as a curse. Consider what Paul writes in one of his later letters in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says this, that for our sake, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so what is Paul saying there? That God made Jesus to be sin. Not that he knew no sin, because Jesus was perfect. But yet God made him to be sin, so that by your faith in him, you would be right before God. You would be declared right before God. And so what happens on the cross then, that by Christ dying on the cross, it's because he bears sin, not his own sin, 
but the sins of those who would believe in him, the sins of, of sinful humanity, excuse me, by him dying on the cross, he dies not for his own sins, but for the sins of the people that he came to die for. And one thing just to remind you of as well, remember how Paul connects this passage back to, that, to verse 10 in Galatians chapter 3. What's that one word that's connecting them? It's the word cursed. Again, Jesus is not being cursed for his own sins. He is cursed on the cross for the sins of humanity. And because of his great love for the world, he sacrifices himself. He gives himself up for us, loved ones, by dying on the cross, paying your sin debt in full, the, the punishment that we all deserve by dying on the cross for our sins forever. Christ says, I have come to die on the cross as a curse for my people so that, by, that whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. And to, and to further expound upon that idea then of the great exchange, Consider what 1 Peter 2.24 says, adding more details to what is happening here on the cross. Peter writes that he himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, the tree of the cross. That we will die to sin and live to righteousness, it is by his wounds you have been healed. And so when Christ dies on the cross, the curse of the cross, he is bearing the curse that you and I deserve, the curse of eternal death. And yet, Jesus was, came into the world to die on the cross. He bore your sin debt in full so that when God judges sin, you no longer have to deal with it in hell anymore. When you die, you are not going to go to hell anymore because you believe in Jesus, because, because God has dealt with your sin elsewhere. He dealt it on the cross. When Christ dies on the cross, he pays your sin debt in full because as, a, as, a, as fully human, he was able to die as a physical sacrifice, redeeming humanity back to himself. And yet, since he was fully God, he was able to bear the full wrath of God when he, when he was on that cross for all those hours so that at the end, before Christ died, he said, what? It's finished. What was finished? Pain, the full wrath of God by dying on the cross as a curse for sinful humanity. So the great exchange is that if you believe in Jesus by faith alone, your sin debt is placed into Christ's account. He pays it in full on the cross, a curse for your sake, so that your sins are judged upon himself on the cross. And in exchange, all the perfect works that Christ ever earned as under the law, the perfect law keeper, he gives you his righteousness. As if you perfectly obeyed the law. Not because you deserved it. Not because he had to. But because by your faith in him, he did so out of his great love for you. That is the heart of the gospel. That is how your sins are forgiven. Not that God just forgets about it. He still judges your sin. But the only difference for the Christian is you don't have to spend eternity in hell for it. Rather, Christ bore the eternal wrath of God on the cross on your behalf. And so if you believe in him by faith, repent of your sins and follow him, you are saved. Because your sins have been paid in full on the cross in Christ. So if there's anyone here who doesn't believe in Jesus, who has not repented of the sins and placed their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, I exhort you, you must repent of your sins. You must place your faith in Jesus. Because you may think that to live the good life, you got to do whatever you want. That's what the culture says. But at the end of the day, it's only going to lead to more brokenness. It's only going to lead to more pain. And as the Bible has been telling us today, loved ones, is that you can only find life in King Jesus. And so if there's anyone here who doesn't believe in Christ, believe in him by faith alone. And even if you have any doubts about the gospel, it's like, I don't know if, if, if I should believe in Jesus. If there's anyone here or anyone online, reach out to me, find me after service. I'll love to help wrestle with those doubts with you so that we can help you, I can help you, the church could help you here to understand who Christ really is so that you can truly repent of your sins and place your faith in him who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Christ the God-man, 
He became a curse by bearing the curse of his people upon himself. That's the great exchange. And he was only able to redeem his people because he perfectly obeyed God while being born under the law. And so for him to die is a curse then. He bears the penalty of the curse in full. And so whoever believes in him, by faith, you are declared right before God. For you actively receive God's, Christ's righteousness as a gift. And it's because of all that, loved ones, by Christ on the cross, that we see the result, the purpose of why Christ did all that. And that's what we see in Galatians 3.14. So just to close with what Paul says here, look at what Paul says in Galatians 3.14. He says that so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so really there's two purposes here, right? Why Christ died on the cross? One was so that the blessing of Abraham might actually come to the Gentiles. Because although Christ was the Messiah to the Jews, he is also the Savior of the world. And so that promise that God first made to Abraham, that he's going to be blessed to all the nations, that was fulfilled in Christ. That as Abraham believed in the promises of a coming Messiah, for all those who believe in the fulfillment of those promises in the person of Jesus, you will be saved as well. And because of that, you will receive the Holy Spirit by faith, which is only possible in Jesus Christ alone. That's why Christ came for, to redeem a people back to himself again, not only from the nation of Israel, but from all the nations of the world. And so truly, Christ, the perfect lawkeeper, he became a curse to redeem all of us who were imperfect lawbreakers. And the curse of Christ's cross, that is what brought us blessing. That is what brings us life when you believe in him as Lord and Savior. That's the goodness of the gospel. You have the cross of Christ, the curse of the cross, and it's only through that curse that you can find true blessing by your faith in King Jesus. And so, as we close, I mentioned at the beginning that there is usually two reasons why you would ever go to a cemetery, right? But there's actually a third reason that I didn't say earlier. And it's the day when you die yourself. The appointment to the grave is an inevitable reality for everyone. And since humanity has sinned against the Creator God, He curses everyone with eternal death. However, as we saw earlier, shortly, that there is a blessing for everyone to be free from the bondage of sin and death. Such freedom is only found in Jesus, for you are saved by faith in Christ alone. And so, just as a final exhortation, loved ones, I'll leave you all with an ultimate decision for believers and unbelievers, whoever's listening to this. You can either choose life this day. Or you can either choose death. You can either choose blessing or cursing. If you want to live, you can only live by your faith in King Jesus. That is how you live a life blessed in God. A life of true human flourishing by not doing it your own way, but by denying yourself and believing in the one who died as a curse for your behalf. And that is what Christ did on the cross. So believe in him. You can only find life in Jesus. Not only in this life, but even in the life to come. And so so if there's anyone here who doesn't believe in the gospel, repent and believe in him because it's only in Christ Jesus that you can find life in him. And for my brothers and sisters, because you do affirm this gospel reality, live your life in light of it. How you, how you talk, how you preach the gospel to your, fr- to your friends and family. Keep, keep the gospel at the forefront of your minds. Because the gospel is not just for unbelievers, right? It's for us as well. Be reminded of this beautiful reality so that you can live in light of the gospel that has saved you. But yet, if there's anyone here who does decide to choose death, not life, which would be crazy, just know that if you do go that way, that you will not find life in Christ, but you would ultimately die. Because at that point, you would die not only under the curse of the law, but under the curse of death, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So repent of your sins if you haven't, and believe in Jesus, 
For those who have, live your life for King Jesus. And so with all that in mind, loved ones, let's pray, and then we'll get ready for the Lord's Supper.